I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, 300 milligram dose, and adults with active psoriatic arthritis, 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You are listening to an exclusive on PodHub Network. Your city, your podcast. To the delight of this crowd, McClendon marches down the dugout steps with first base. McCutcheon's throw. The runner breaks to the plate. Here's the throw. Wow. It is out. The Buckos win. That ball's in well to left center field. Back toward the track. You are listening to the North Shore 9 Podcast. Follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, make sure to watch NS9 Live every Thursday on Twitch and help support by becoming a patron. Let's go, Bucks! Welcome to the North Shore 9 Podcast. I am your host, Anthony DiNardo. With me this week, we have my co-host, Tyler, a.k.a. Wagner to Kutch. Tyler, what up? What up? how up? you doing? How you doing on this Maz 60th anniversary? Also, Amazon Prime Day. 60 years ago. That would be... Math is hard. 33 years before I was born. Right? Yep. I mean, you tell me. How old are you? <laughs> I had to think. I'm 27, so yep. First We're... off, you had to think how old you were. Oh, man. Well, I just so... had a birthday, Donardo, and nobody celebrated it with me, and it was tough. Thanks, COVID. We we celebrated it far, far away, but in our hearts. That's true. With you. Just no one knew what happened. <laughs> no, <laughs> and it's probably best that way. Oh, well. But anyway, no, it's been actually, it feels like it's been a while. It's Well, it's definitely been a while since just you and I have been on a mic doing a podcast like this. Not I had to remember where my stuff was. 
I know. I had to remember how I started a podcast. <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. I've used GarageBand in, it seems like, 13 years. <laughs> but um, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Uh, how's, how's your time been? What's a podcast? People do Twitch now. Gosh. I know, it's, right? It's, it's actually, been lovely. Twitch, Twitch is probably be yeah, phasing out here. What's the next thing, right? Yeah, I I think we're Twitch is a little old for us now. Mm. I don't know. I know well, with you being 27 and me being 23 and all, you know. Yeah, tw- 23. That's exactly what you are. Yep. So that would make it 37 years from before you were born. Exactly for this home run. Exactly, because I am 23. So no, but for real, we we have a special treat today. We have a special guest coming on the show. For those that don't know. Uh, we're going to be talking about the 1960 Pirates of Maz and such. Pretty cool guest. Um, you know, before we get into that, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to touch up on. I know the World Series is about to start. We're in the NLAC, NLCS and I was going to say the NLACH. I don't know. The NLCS and the ALCS. Um, the Rays looking pretty, pretty, pretty good. I'm all aboard the train of let's just get this over with. Just get it over with. Yeah, You're it done don't with matter. The, done with the season. Nope. I want to know matter. your take, and we'll probably you know dabble a little more into this maybe on Thursday. But people really want the Astros to win. You- I think internet trolls want the Astros to win. So is that what it is? Like just internet trolls? Yeah. Yeah. Or is it just because it's a stupid season? So it would be again, a control move that the Astros. I mean, it would. Yeah. It would be funny to have them have two asterisks on world series. (laughs) Cause this one's getting one as well. I get that side. I get that point of view now. I've been kind of curious. I'm like, you know, there's so much Astros hate. And then I've found some renewed love for the Astros. Like within the past week, it seems that, Hey, let's have the Astros win. I've been kind of curious to that. So I guess. To the degree of having the two asterisks, that would be, that would be pretty funny. You can't take any World Series of theirs, legit. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean either that or have the Dodgers win and they can claim the World Series and we can all tell them that they really count. Right, I'd like that. I'd like that. But yeah, the Rays—they're looking pretty good, and I, I the Braves maybe taking out the Dodgers. I don't know. I, I get down for a Braves Rays World Series. I'll give it a big old can. I don't give a crap. Mm. And then move on to football. That's, no, let's just move on to next season. Pirates let's got number on. one pick now officially. Let's just. Yes, let's keep there's some news. That is official. The Pirates number one pick. I like that. All right. Well, let's get into it. We Let's go and bring our guest on. Let's do it. All right. And so joining us. With us live on the 60th anniversary of Maz's home run, <laughs> we have ourselves Wayne Stewart, author of 1960, When the Pittsburgh Pirates Had Them All the Way. Wayne, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Oh, real good. And I think, it, like you said, it's very appropriate today to, to be taping this because uh, 60 years, boy, that's a long time ago. But, you know, many people think it's the greatest sports memory in uh, Pittsburgh history, depending on, you know, what their preferences are. But, yeah, quite a quite a day. It, it sure beats any memory I have. So, <laughs> 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 But, yeah, uh, glad to have you on. 
so as mentioned, you know, today celebrates the 60th anniversary of Maz hitting the home run, the walk-off home run against the New York Yankees in the 1960 World Series. Why don't you tell us, um, first off, a little bit of why you wrote this book? Well, you know, it actually began with a magazine article I did, and I'm not, I can't even remember what year it was. I know it was uh, the year that was celebrating either like the 30th or 40th anniversary of the Pirates. And then as we got closer to this one, I, I remembered that I had done that article, and I said, you know, what if I would um, revisit it and try to talk to some of these guys that I spoke to earlier and even expand upon that? Because I was able to talk to uh, virtually every living Pirate um, the irony is that the one guy I didn't get to reach was Bill Mazeroski. And um, I tried. There was, there's a guy from, I, I grew up in Denora, Pennsylvania, right across the Monongahela River. There's a small community where this guy named Ron Nechai grew, grew up as well. And uh, he wound up pitching for a high school, Monongahela High School, that later became you know, part of Ringgold High School, where Joe Montana's from. So mm-hmm. at any rate, getting back to the story, you know, so I... Um, I went through Netshot to try to get the Maz, but I was able to speak to you know Vernon Law, the Cy Young Award winner, the MVP Dick Grote, and I thought, yeah, now I've got enough material that we can expand in what was a, a story into a book. So that pretty much is the genesis, you know, the the roots of this uh, book. So Wayne, I have a question regarding that '60 World Series. You spoke, like you said, you spoke to a lot of the guys. Obviously. That's a World Series where in the three losses they had, they lost by 13 runs, they lost by 12 runs, they lost by 10 runs, a combined 35 runs in talking to these guys. Do you feel like maybe that World Series isn't as appreciated as it should be, maybe even just including the Mazeroski home run? Because with that, I feel like you get more of the attention on, a, say, the Kirk, Kirk Gibson moment, Kirby Puckett, Joe Carter, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. The the first thing that, that strikes me is the Mazeroski home run remains the only Game 7 walk-off home run. I guess there have only been two home runs that ever won the series flat out, the Carter and the Maz. But how can you compare the tension of Game 7 to Carter's? Maz gets the nod easily in my book. And when I mm-hmm. spoke to Vernon Law, I asked him if he thought that the Maz home run uh, isn't ranked as highly as it could be right. or should be because... Uh, people always talk about the Bobby Thompson home run. Well, that's the New York uh, slant. And it mm-hmm. kills me because, you know, Thompson's home run wins a pennant. Maz's wins a World Series, but because we're not in New York City, we're not going to, you know, praise it as much as it, it deserves. So, yeah, I, I, that really irritates me that because Pittsburgh is a small market mm-hmm. and, and New York monopolizes the media, uh, you know, that Maz doesn't get quite the credit. Uh, the other thing is, the Pirates in general, I guess, didn't get as much credit to, mm-hmm. because to me, that's the most, perhaps the wildest, certainly the most lopsided World Series ever. So, yeah, it should go down in history. And it has, but like you're saying, uh, perhaps somewhat diminished. Yeah. I just know, you know, obviously before my time, but growing up, I heard it all the time that, you know, watching these countdowns, watching whatever it was. It was maybe a five to ten moment where you have a Kirk Gibson as the greatest moment of all time, but we're talking about a game seven walk off home run. Right. It just doesn't seem like it gets the credit it possibly should. Right. And and you know, Maz is <clears throat> rather modest and low key and he wasn't a big, big name like uh you know, in that World Series, Maz winds up with uh, 
uh, as many home runs or more, I should say, than every player on either team. You know, uh, he he winds up with two. He actually had two game-winning home runs, but everybody just remembers the one. But in that World Series, only Mickey Mantle with three home runs had more than than uh, Maz. Uh, Moose Scourin and, and Roger Maris had two to tie Maz. But the point is, if if you mention a big slugger like like Mantle or Ruth, uh, you know you, you're going to put that as part of the lore of the game. But Maz not being a home run hitter, as I said, being mm-hmm. low key and modest, he kind of gets uh, overlooked, at least to some extent. I agree. And and centering around Maz a little bit, you know, again he he's the hero now. Um, you know, for the people that obviously weren't there for the 1960 World Series and such. What was his stature like among Pittsburgh at that point in time? I, I couldn't imagine if, first off, if you know the current Pirates made it to a World Series. But like, think about like when Kutch was in town. Like, I couldn't imagine if Kutch had won by a walk-off home run. Just how glorified mm-hmm. he would be even further in you know Pittsburgh. Was there some of that you know uh, for for Maz? I'm sorry. Was there some of what? Uh, I, I, like uh, how how much did that home run I guess glorify him around Pittsburgh and, you know, people look up to him now, you know, with that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Again, that ties in with what we were saying. If, if Maz was with the Yankees, his name would be in all the history books, uh, you know, baseball and, and, and more um, intense, but being in Pittsburgh overlooked, but as you're saying, he did certainly get the credit here in Pittsburgh. I mean, the local hero, it's one of those mm-hmm. uh, things where you joke about, like he could go to any bar in town and get a free <laughs> beer for the rest of his life in Pittsburgh. Obviously, the the statue outside of PNC attests to his uh, enduring, you know, popularity and uh, his place in in Pittsburgh history. Certainly, and again, you know, if you if you read the history books of baseball, I'm not saying Maz doesn't get attention. Everybody talks about that home mm-hmm. run if you're talking about 1960, but again, it's just not not as much as as he probably deserves. I know you mentioned uh, uh, Mickey Mantle earlier. Now. There seemed to be some – I know I read at one point that in his autobiography he had talked about the usage of Whitey Ford uh, maybe letting him go a complete game, I believe, in game six. And then there was also some discrepancy on whether he should have pitched game one or game five. Did you guys get into the usage of him or maybe some of the Yankees managers uh, – I guess, strategy in that World Series. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> a very important part, and the Pirates to this day will tell you that, in fact, Vernon Law said, in his opinion, the Yankee players didn't lose the World Series. He said, mm-hmm. it was Casey, Casey Stengel, the manager, uh, he said Ford could dominate you. You know, they called him the chairman of the board. And the truth is that Stengel decided not to throw his ace, Whitey Ford, in game one. Well, you know, you might say strategy that wasn't Ford's greatest season, mm-hmm. but he doesn't throw Whitey Ford in game two either. And his logic is he thinks it would be better for the Yankees to hold Ford back till game three when they're back in New York City. Well, you know, I talked to Bobby Richardson, who was the MVP of the World Series. He's a Yankee, uh, the only the only guy ever to win the MVP for losing team. And he was saying he thinks the whole history of the World Series would have changed if uh, if Stengel would have thrown him in Game One. Uh, I think um, I think it was Ralph Carey. He was the guy that gave up the home run to Maz, but he was talking about the same topic and said that uh, he, he believes that you know the, the way Ford was going with two shutouts, 
he might have thrown a third shutout mm-hmm. or certainly a low-scoring game, and uh, and Ford alone would have won three games, and maybe the Pirates don't win. So that's definitely a key to it. There was another point in the game where years later, Mickey Mantle, who, by the way, cried in the locker room after losing that game, and in fact, he was quoted many years later as saying that uh, that's the one defeat that gnawed at him that just ate him up more mm-hmm. than any. You know, he felt they were the better team, and the stats proved that as far as, you know, if you could go by individual stats and team stats. But um, he was also very perturbed that Casey Stengel uh, made decisions like sticking with a guy named Jim Coates, who was visibly shaken after after a play was botched. We can go into that you know, later if you'd like, but, uh, and he, and he sticks with Coates and that just the floodgates open after that botched play that the Yankees did. And, um, I, I remember the quote basically is he said right then and there after that, as I say, messed up play, Casey should have pulled Coates out of the game. The situation demanded it. He was fidgeting like a man with ants in his pants. So you don't want to let a man like that pitch. So yeah, it really got to Mantle and, uh, the, the moves Stengel made were dissected, you know, here again right. and again after the series. And, uh, you know, he was he was getting at an age where he was actually sometimes during the regular season uh, falling asleep during games. So, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was crazy. Yeah, and that was his last year with him, wasn't it? Yeah, he was fired, uh, I forget, two, three, whatever days after the World Series. Yeah, and he had something like a quote of quit, fired, doesn't matter, something like that. yeah. Uh, the, the other quote he said <laughs> it was uh, the Yankees, the front office, tried to sugarcoat it and say that he mm-hmm. wasn't being fired for losing the series or for being, uh, you know, out of it, sleeping on the bench and so mm-hmm. on. But they said, you know, he's done his job here for us and, he, you know, he's getting old. And the other quote after <laughs> he was fired, Stengel said, well, I'll never make the mistake of being 70 years old again. So he <laughs> was bitter. He was definitely bitter. <laughs> sure he was. Yeah. Can you imagine that happening now? I just, it's just something like that where at that kind of press conference, the way the world has changed is that would be all over the news. I well, probably know, was then too, but yeah. But I mean, if you look at the way we are now, it's like uh, Don Mattingly did a fine job with the Dodgers, but he didn't get him to the world series. So he gets fired. Uh, mm-hmm. Renteria with the the White Sox, right. you know, he did a nice job this year, but nice isn't good enough. It's like you got to win the World Series or mm-hmm. else. And I, I guess that's the way the Yankee and Yankee felt, fans felt even back in 1960. I, I guess, you know. Yeah, I guess when you fall asleep in the dugout, though, that might yeah. be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was going to say too, speaking about that, I mean, you mentioned how you know Waddy Ford was saved till Game Three. You know, in this climate, in this world, I just couldn't imagine, especially mm. the New York media. Yeah, having a manager make that decision and probably, you know, last till game three and not get fired. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing, too, is Stengel had some very respected coaches. Uh, they didn't have bench coach back then, but they had like Eddie Lopat, a guy named Ralph Pauk. And uh, there was a guy named Frank Rossetti who was in his 19th World Series as either a player or a coach. And they supported Stengel. Now, maybe that's, you know, fitting with the company company line on that. But they thought that uh, Ford would be, you know, better suited to the Fish Yankee Stadium. But most people, I guess, don't, you know. So <laughs> you, you lay yourself exposed there when you uh, make those kind of moves. 
respect the decision. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and we mentioned, you know, the Mavs, you know, walk off home run in game seven. But there was something also very interesting that happened in game seven. And, and obviously with the pitchers of Vern Law and Bob Friend pitching for the Pirates, you, know, you had Bob Turley for the Yankees, uh, Bob Chance actually starting the game. There was not one strikeout recorded. Yeah, game seven. You know, the first time I heard that was uh, a couple years ago. At I think it was Heinz Hall or something. They had that. Uh, they showed the 1960 World Series. I guess Bing uh, Crosby's uh, one of his, uh, you know, servants or whatever taped the the game. Uh, I guess Bing was filming in Paris or something, and they discovered this this actual footage of the game. Uh, that was, I guess, after Bing died, they discovered it in you know, his archives or whatever. And they had this big event. I don't know if you recall that, but uh, Mike, Michael Keaton came in and they got as many pirates as they could. And yeah, when they said that, Dick Grove was like astonished because, uh, you know, nowadays the guys are striking out at a prolific rate. And uh, that's the only, only game in the history of postseason to this day with no strikeouts. <laughs> yeah, I find that incredible. <laughs> you know another just like facet of that game you know everyone talks about the the only walk-off home run you know wins like he said the world series and yet also in the same game the only one to ever record without a strikeout yeah that's not something and i read something at one point bing crosby he owned uh part of the pirates at one point but he was too nervous to even watch game seven of that world series he went to paris or something well, the story I heard was that he was, uh, I believe it was Paris, uh, that he was uh, filming, and that's the only reason he couldn't mm-hmm. watch it. But I think ah. he did something like maybe had a radio, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. not a radio, but I think he might have had long-distance phone calls going every once in a while. But yeah, very nervous, of course. So now, the... Go, go oh, ahead, go ahead Tyler. Oh, no, uh, I want... <laughs> I just wanted to go back a little bit on Vern Law. Uh, mm-hmm. He had the ankle injury in that World Series, if I'm correct. Now, is the story correct that he injured that before the World Series while celebrating? Did you get a chance to touch on that at all? Yeah, that's what he told me. He said that uh, <laughs> after they after they found out that mathematically they had won the pennant, they mm-hmm. were in uh, Milwaukee. They actually lost that night, so uh, they had to wait a little bit, I guess. And they found out that um, they win the pennant. And so they're naturally celebrating, and the celebration carried over onto the bus. They were doing antics, just, you know, silly stuff like trying to cut neckties off other players and just, you know, pulling their T-shirts out or whatever. But uh, they they were trying to yank Law's uh, shoes off him. And one guy's holding his leg and the other guy's yanking on the foot. And uh, and Law said that that uh, is where and how he got hurt. Mm-hmm. And yet he goes out and pitches very well. He He could have easily won three games in the world series. He had the lead in game seven, but he does win two on that uh, bad ankle. Did he go any deeper on what that did to his future career? Cause I know there were stories about that leading to more arm problems in the future. Yeah. Uh, you've done your, your research. You're absolutely <laughs> right. He said that, uh, I forget how many years, but it was several years mm-hmm. before he felt, uh, felt good again. And, uh, yeah, his stats dropped off drastically the next year which is why I'm so amazed that he did so well in the, in the world series. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Just to be able to battle through that. And I mean, that was his plant leg. If I remember my dad telling me correctly and battling through it to be able to pitch that well in the world series is 
that's something. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. Sorry, you know, mind you. Cut you off. Oh, go ahead. Also, no, no, actually, just follow up with that. Also, to speak, Vern Law going two for six in this series <laughs> with a double. <laughs> let's tie this in because you know let's we're talking current and and present and such. The possibility of the DH going away. I want to know your talk, your 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 thought on that. Well, I'm I'm old school. I mean, really old school. Like you said, I I'm old enough to remember that World Series, and therefore, being a National League fan, also I've always hated the the DH. Uh, I understand the arguments for and against it, but to me, on the rare occasion when a when a pitcher does something, it, I, I like the things in baseball that are like startling or different or odd. Mm-hmm. But be it a be it a safety squeeze, suicide squeeze, uh, you know. Uh, a run and hit, which is not the same as a hit and run. These things, to me, you know, add some spice to baseballs. So to see a pitcher double in a game or, uh, you know, lay down a beautiful sacrifice even, which you don't see nowadays. These these world, these games, the playoffs lately, uh, we've had some one nothing games with the Braves winning and nobody lays down a sacrifice. Everybody swing for the fences. So I, I guess – you know, you naturally like what you grew up with. So, no, I don't like the DH, and uh, I, I really did appreciate when when a pitcher was a good hitter, like a Warren Spawn or Madison Baumgartner mm-hmm. lately. Um, so, yeah, I think it takes something away. Uh, at least that's my personal view, you know. Yeah, I'm with you, Wayne. I'm, I'm 27. Uh, just growing up on the traditionalist side of baseball, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it just doesn't seem like, I understand the arguments of it. It just doesn't feel like real baseball to me sometimes. Right. I feel like the quirks of it are what make it baseball. Mm-hmm. The strategy, the quirks, the oddities. Right. And I'm betting any money that you also, being a traditionalist, don't like the idea that we might have a world champion with a losing record this year. <laughs> if Houston would win, <laughs> you're going to say that Houston is the best team in baseball by by uh, you know the definition of winning the World right. Series, and they're a losing record team. Uh, that irritates me too. Yeah, I'm. I, I can't disagree with you, especially. But this year is so strange that. Yeah. I don't know if we would think it was a real World Series no matter what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I, I just honestly just having baseball is a plus. However, what rule they want to change for this year, whatever, it really didn't bother me any bit. Just have baseball. It's. It's kind of a joke in the sense, anyways. Um, yeah, I actually read your blog a little bit. You you kind of dabbed into that. You know, the the ending season, the you know, leaders, like the stats are going to have. Can you really take them without it being a joke in the sense? And that's kind of how I feel. You know, I mean, it very could have been plausible that the MVP had a 400 batting average, and right, you know, over 162 games, that's probably not going to happen. But do you really put that up there as you know a season? This guy had 400, you know, batting average. So I get where you're coming from. Um, you know, with that DH being there this year, it was like, to me, whatever, you know, I understand it, but going forward, I've kind of liked that dynamic. Uh, you know, the ALS had the DH and I'm okay with it. I've actually appreciated the dynamic of them having the DH and the NL not. And then of course, when it comes to the world series, the other team has to play by the other side's rules and makes it kind of interesting. So yeah, I would love to see the DH just stay in the AL and not come to the NL, but I'm afraid it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, I bet you're right. And I appreciate the little plug there for the uh, the blog. If anybody's interested, all you have to do is type in my name, Wayne Stewart. It's S-T-E-W-A-R-T. So Wayne Stewart on sports.blog. And, uh, yeah, I like to share things like you just mentioned now, yeah. 
So, Wayne, I do have another question for you. Um, sure. Being as Branch Rickey, you know, obviously the guy that you brought Jackie Robinson in, also the guy that, well, I guess you could say he probably did bring in Roberto to correct with the Dodgers and then took him away from him. Is that how it went? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, from what I understand. Uh, you know, Branch, of course, knew about Clemente, even though some sources say that up there with the Montreal Royals, they tried to mm-hmm. hide him and not play right. him a lot, which isn't totally, it's a little exaggerated. But yeah, Ricky, being with the Dodgers for years, was well aware of Clemente and his ability. So when he comes over to be the GM of the Pirates, mm-hmm. uh, he was able to, I forget exactly how he manipulated it, but. Uh, he, he, they had the number one pick in the rule five, which is completely uh, different now, but whatever it was yeah. mm-hmm. somehow was, I, yeah, that's a little bit dicey on how that all worked out, but it was a different era. Um, but he seems to be the mastermind behind putting together that 1960 world series, even though he was no longer there. Uh, did yeah, you get a sense of appreciation for him just from talking to these guys? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, because a lot of times you'll hear negative about Ricky as far as him being mm-hmm. miserly and not uh, generous with his players and so on. And a lot of times when a general manager leaves or gets fired and the next guy comes along, like I was saying about managers with Dave Roberts taking over for Don Mattingly, mm-hmm. you kind of forget the GM who did a lot of the uh, groundwork. But uh, Ricky definitely was a part of that pirate team, even though he wasn't there. But I think also Joe Brown, it deserves a lot of credit because he made some big trades. I think one in particular with the Reds brought over Hoke, if I'm not uh, forgetting some of the details. And uh, she was, there was, uh, if I remember, Haddock's was not a pirate product. So uh, yeah, he, he did a great job as well. And one, one thing I like about uh, Branch Rickey is the fact that his son was nicknamed Twig. And he was also <laughs> the part, I think he was also in the front office at times. Yeah. That's a great nickname for Branch's son. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, just the fact that I think the Roberto Clemente acquisition gets overlooked just because you think of almost like the, well, not in the same subject, but just like the 60 World Series gets overlooked. I think people forget that he is the reason Roberto Clemente came to Pittsburgh, really. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yep. And not just him. I, I think he was, you know, Mazeroski, Dick Grote, Vern Law, guys like that. Really the cornerstones of that 60s World Series. Yep. Yeah, a lot of credit is, is, should be dealt to Ricky. But you, know, you kind of get forgotten if you're not mm-hmm. on the scene directly. But no, you're right. Yeah, and, and getting back to the World Series. Uh, you know, Tyler, you mentioned earlier, too, just about how it's not appreciated because really just how wild it was. Let's put it that way. It was wild. Uh, the Pirates win it. They scored 55 runs. The Yankees, on the other hand, scored. Or, or I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Pirates scored 27 runs. The Yankees scored 55. That's what it was. Uh, but somehow the Pirates end up winning this. So, you know, we, we noticed a very clear picture here. When the Pirates won, it was very close. And when the Pirates lost, well, it's pretty ugly. Pretty much a Yankees blowout. Um, I mean, tell us about just the series in this, it's itself, how crazy that was watching or maybe oh, following. Sure. Yeah, I mean, those stats that you mentioned are very uh, indicative. And, you know, nowadays, the team that wins uh, 
the playoffs so often is the team that out slugs out homers the other team. Pittsburgh was out a homer ten to four. I have the stats in front of me. Uh, that the sixteen to let me see the twelve nothing shutout was the biggest ever at that point. Uh, the Yankees set all kind of records. They hit three thirty eight as a team. The Pirates hit two fifty six. Uh, the on base plus slugging this is incredible. The Pirates six fifty six on base and slugging. And the Yankees 9-11 as a team, uh, but the guys I interviewed said that that didn't bother them too much because number one, and there was a great line by a pirate named Gino Simoli, when Game Seven was over, he said, "Yeah, the Yankees broke all the records and we won the game and you know got the money in the ring." Uh, back then, by the way, it was 8,400 for the winner, and the Yankees got 5,200. But the other reason it didn't bother the Pirates. Uh, and they told me this, is that Murtaugh, for example, the manager, and the players realized when you get beaten that badly, you're trounced, you don't go home at night and stay awake all night tossing, turning, and saying, we should have done this, what if that. They just said, tomorrow's another day, and, uh, and they just shoved that uh, defeat aside. Uh, and, and I also find it ironic that, you know, the Pirates were out homered 10-4, to 4, but they wind up winning using the tool that – you know, took the Yankees all year long, the home run beats them. So once again, it's 1960 Pirates. 1960 when the Pittsburgh Pirates had them all the way, which is only available on Amazon. Correct. Uh, I have a little off-topic question. Since you seem to be a follower of the Pirates for a long time, how many home runs do you think Willie Starger would have hit if he didn't play in Forbes Field his, for such a long time? Yeah, they had that. Uh, it was a short portion right field where you could pull the ball, but they had that high screen. So people sometimes forget about that. Uh, Stargell, if I'm not mistaken, hit more home runs over that right field pavilion than others. But, you know, that that certainly takes away from his number. You know, I have no idea. I think he wound up with exactly 475. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, the reason I remember that is because that's the, the same as Stan the Man Musial being from the <laughs> North Pennsylvania. That's locked, locked into my head. But no, to answer your question, I agree with you 100%. Stargell loses some home runs. Uh, Three Rivers, you know, how many times did he hit the upper deck there? That's a different story. And uh, I have no idea what he did at PNC, but uh, boy, what a slugger he was, huh? <laughs> For sure. And uh, so, obviously, you know, you you – I said reading this book. <laughs> you obviously wrote the book. <laughs> You're writing this book. Uh, as we've mentioned, you, you've talked to many different people in regards to it, you know, Vern Law being one of them. Um, what what did you learn about the 1960 season? You know, not just the, the, the World Series, but just in total the season itself that's very interesting that you didn't know about, you know, these players told you. Yeah, well, I, I think during the research, too, I came up with uh, – some stuff I didn't realize back then as a young kid. During the regular season, the Pirates had a little bit over 20 wins that came in their last at bat, and 12 times they won when there were two outs in their final inning, and yet they win. Extra innings, they won 70% of those games. But the one thing that uh, Hal Smith told me was uh, about the game that was played on Easter Sunday. They were down, it was April 17th, they were down 5 nothing going into the ninth. And they just storm back with six runs on six hits, get a uh, walk-off home run by uh, Bob Skinner, which I figured probably you know prompted Bob Prince to use that famous line of his where we had him all the way, even though 
they certainly didn't have them all the way. And that's kind of why I borrowed, borrowed his quote for the book. But um, Dick Schofield, who was a utility infielder, and he did a great job replacing Grote when he was hurt in September, uh, he said of that comeback, down 5 nothing in the ninth, you could play a 1,000 games like that one and maybe win one. And I thought, yeah, that might be true, but that was the whole season. It was a one-in-a-thousand kind of season. And I think it was after that game where the Hal Smith story comes out. Uh, after a remarkable comeback, he turns to Skinner and he says, hey, Bob, where do we sign up to get our World Series tickets? Uh, he's half joking, <laughs> but turned out to be prophetic. You know, the, what a year of destiny. That's, that's one thing that really struck me uh, about this season. It was just so odd. And strange plays like that happen in the World Series, as we touched on earlier. So a team of fate, yeah. So, Wayne, you also have another book, The Wits, Flakes, and Clowns, The Colorful Characters of Baseball. It seems like you touch a little bit on Andy Vance. Like, is there, Are there any good stories you can tell us about him without giving too much away in the book? Yeah, um, I'm really proud of that book because, you know, I've been reading baseball books since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I've, over the years, collected funny stories from other books. And then to go out and expand upon that, I not only have the best of other people, but uh, talking to guys like Van Slyke and coming up with exclusive material, I, I frankly think the book's pretty pretty funny. And, uh, and, you know, some of the quotes are amusing more than laugh out loud, but a lot of stuff is, is pretty funny. I mean, when Andy Van Slyke, to get back to your topic, um, you know, first joined the Orioles after he left the Pirates, you know, uh, he was told that the uh, Baltimore team had a no-hair-below-the-lips policy. So he says, does that mean I have to shave my legs. You know, I was always coming up with little cute things like clever things like that. Uh, one time he was asked in a pregame meeting uh, if they knew this new player that had just been brought up that uh, would oppose them that night. I, I think it was a pitcher. And Vance like says, well, he, yeah, I know something about him. So the manager says, uh, how do you know? And the guy, Vance like says, well, I played against him in winter ball. Okay, so how do we pitch to this guy? And Vance like says, Oh, I don't know. He was on the disabled list that night. So, <laughs> you know, you have a different way of looking at stuff. And uh, the the one thing that gets me about Van Slyke, though, uh, makes me kind of, I guess, sad or whatever, is the story. And this isn't funny at all, but uh, he said that when Francisco Cabrera was batting in that infamous game where, you know, the Pirates lose uh, the LCS, mm -hmm. He, had, he, Vance Lake, had hollered over to Bonds to play more shallow and maybe over a little bit towards center or whatever. And Bonds just kind of, I think, swore at him and ignored him and talked about history changing. Who knows? Maybe he throws out uh, Sid Bream at the plate if he had <laughs> just listened to Vance Lake. So but he I, treated I, him like he treated Jim Leland. Yeah, and probably <laughs> most everybody. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I tried to interview him one time at Three Rivers and he was just, you know, kind of brush you off, ignore you. and mm -hmm. so No, he's not one of my favorite guys to try to interview. <laughs> but, but no, Andy Van Slyke was great to talk to. So just to piggyback off that, who were your favorite guys to interview? Hmm. Well, over the years, there have been so many. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. I approached Nolan Ryan, and I had forgotten that he was pitching that day. And normally you don't talk to a pitcher or certainly try to interview him on the day he's pitching. But I think he had been around so many years and so confident. You know, he said, sure, I'll talk to you. Mm -hmm. So I kind of appreciated that. Uh, Three Rivers one day, Tony Gwynn, uh, I approached him. And, yeah, you know, I'm kind of busy. I said, well, I just want to ask you about hitting. 
boy, his eyes lit up, you know, because <laughs> he loved talking innings. So he gave me a great interview. But some of the guys are not big names, but I appreciated, uh, like, Rex Sudler. I asked him a question pregame uh, around the batting cage. He said, uh, I don't know, but I'll think about it. Uh, typically, that means polite no. Uh-huh. But sure enough, I'm in the clubhouse, and before the game, the guys are getting ready. And he comes over and he says, I thought about that. I got some good stuff for you. So I like that. And Doug Drabeck did something similar to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, most of the guys I've interviewed, there have been some jerks like Ronnie Gant and Albert Bell. But over the years, <laughs> uh, typically the players are business-like or, or cooperative or both. Those are I think Albert, surprising names. <laughs> Albert Bell is probably the least surprising name I've ever heard there. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's actually a book I would really be interested to. Just, yeah. uh, I'm sure there was nothing about Yogi Bear in that one, right? <laughs> well, you know, the thing there is I tried to not give too, too many of the typical stories. I wanted the book to be more fresh, new material that I came up with, or maybe some stories that maybe you never heard this story about Yogi. I mean, there was one that I had not heard of before. Uh, he was talking to Frank Rossetti, a Yankee coach, as I said, for many years. And he said, uh, Frank, he said, uh, do you remember the first time you ever saw me? And Chris said, he said, yeah, I remember that. And Yogi said, I was uh, I was in the Navy at the time, and I was reporting to Yankee Stadium. And uh, he said, I still had on my Navy outfit. He said, I, I bet you didn't think I uh, looked like, because uh, he's kind of, you remember Yogi was kind of squat and everything. Mm-hmm. He said, he said, I bet you didn't think I looked like a ball player. And Chris said, he said, I didn't even think he looked like a sailor. <laughs> so, <laughs> trying to throw some good stuff in there. But you're right. The, you have to cover a guy like Yogi or Casey Stengel uh, for a book. But you also want to give the reader something new. Yeah. Um, I did have a question that I'm drawing a blank on now. Goodness. Oh, I would. Can you uh, give me a little bit of more of a shout out on the the Tony Gwynn hitting interview because I would love to read more about that that's something I would be very interested in yeah I think I used that material in a book I wrote called hitting secrets of the pros and uh, I tried to talk to a lot of different guys and get their approach and so Mm -hmm. on and at this point in Tony Gwynn's career he said he never made adjustments for who was pitching against him that day with the exception of guys like Tim Wakefield, he's and, uh, yeah. you know, being in, being in Pittsburgh, he was saying you can't uh, approach it the same with a knuckleball hitter. Now later on, after Gwen had talked to Ted Williams, he started to change his approach a little bit. And uh, if you remember, he started to pull the ball and had halfway decent power. That uh, not just the line drive singles kind of a guy. Uh, the other thing I thought was real interesting about uh, the Gwen interview was he said there was only one. If you remember, Gwen used to <clears throat> take an inside-out swing a lot of times, and he would dump a lot of line drives into left field, mm-hmm. usually pretty shallow left field, obviously in front of the left fielders. And he said there was only one left fielder in all of baseball who would cheat and come in, come in, come in, and try to rob him of those line drives that uh, would typically fall in. And he said that was Bonds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he gave Bonds a lot of credit for his defensive ability as a left fielder. Um, I'm trying to think if he said anything else. Concise, so I'm sure he did. Um, let me think. Um, not off the top of my head, I thought the, the knuckleball thing was kind of interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a book that I would be interested in reading because anything about hitting, I will 
sit down and spend my night on. Well, that book covers, you know, like I said, I did a lot of uh, traveling over mm-hmm. a couple of summers and uh, talked to hitting coaches and uh, Merv Rettman was very instructive. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot from mm-hmm. a whole lot of, of major leaguers. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. how much has changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the approach, yeah, you're right. And, and about something that maybe hasn't changed as much. So here's another thing, and this is going back to your blog. Um, so there was something that stood out, and actually Tyler was the one that pointed this out. And so we currently have the Houston Astros, right, who are caught cheating due to a buzzer system. Wayne, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you wrote on the uh, the 1951 uh, Giants? Yeah, um, you know, the, the cheating, some people have different definitions of what uh, constitutes cheating, like uh, – Bob Feller, uh, I'll get to this first, uh, with the with the Indians, I think it was 1948, they actually had a sort of like a telescope that was used on naval ships because Feller had been in the Navy, and they had somebody out in the center field scoreboard, uh, you know, looking in and stealing signs. Now, almost everybody involved with baseball says that's flat-out cheating. And the 51... Mm-hmm. Uh, team was doing the same the bobby thompson home run we alluded to earlier uh they had a system now the the astros were what beating on garbage cans or whatever inside the <laughs> <Right. dugout. laughs> but the uh the dodgers had this system where they could uh send the signal to i believe it was the dugout and then the dugout would relay it or maybe it was straight to the batter's box and boy i wrote that so long i'm forgetting exactly but they would tap like maybe one for fastball and two buzzes that the guy would feel um, for a curve or something. Is that pretty much? What yeah, I think you said something about them holding up a white towel oh, from the okay. bullpen. Okay, then that's a different, yep. Yeah, the yep. buzzer system was used by somebody, and I can't recall who. But yeah, that, I mean, there's various ways of signaling, of course. But yeah, the guy would, in the batter's box, would look out in the, a window in center field, all high above the playing field. I think it was in the clubhouse that was actually located up high. And they would see that signal. So a lot of people think the Thompson home run was aided by cheating as well. And therefore, they win the pennant with that Thompson uh, home run. Hmm. That's that's something I don't think I've ever heard before. I feel like the Astros scandal is the first time you really heard about uh, someone actually sitting in center field and trying to look between the catcher's legs for a sign. But apparently, it's very much not. Yeah, what did Boston do a couple years ago? They were looking, running and looking at uh, an iPod or iPad or yeah, they had the smart watches Apple or watches. something. Yeah, cheating has come a long way. <laughs> yeah, technology. Yeah. So we went from guys using like a telescope to the technology that we have nowadays to cheat. Huh? Yeah. Now, are there any other major Hall of Famers that you've had a chance to interview and have really enjoyed? Like say a Ted Williams, someone in that realm. Well, the, my favorite, you know, actually, and this is sacrilegious, but Hank Aaron, for uh, because one of my buddies was into the Milwaukee Braves when I was uh, first exposed to baseball. Hank Aaron was my favorite player of all time, uh, and mm-hmm. I was able to do a phone interview with him when I did a, a biography of Stan Musial, because uh, Stan was. Uh, 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 a favorite, I guess, of Hank, or, you know, they, they got along very well. 
So when I called his secretary and was persistent enough, I finally got through to Aaron. Uh, by the way, uh, another another kind of tie-in with Denora and these athletes, uh, I knew that Mike Ditka was very, very crazy about Stan Musial. So when I did a foot book on uh, the great athletes out of Western Pennsylvania, especially quarterbacks, I approached Terry. And once I said I was from Denora, uh, Ditka said, anybody from Denora is okay in my book. And he, <laughs> You know, he actually did the little blurb, the little endorsement on the uh, jacket of that book, which is called America's Football Factory. Um, back to baseball, I talked to Stargell briefly. I've spoken with um, Ken Griffey Sr. and I mean, and, and Jr., Jr. being the Hall of Famer, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, You've got a long list of them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty long list. I've been lucky, you know, <laughs> when you're doing this, you know, for these many years, you're bound to bump into some guys, and and you mm-hmm. know, like Vernon Law, the old timers are the ones who are most appreciative and willing to open up and talk sometimes. So yeah, I've had a lot of luck with that. <laughs> some well, interesting of stuff. Hall of Famers, favorite players, and such. I mean, my favorite player of all time is Ken Griffey Jr. So if you're saying that's sacrilegious to be a Hank Aaron fan, well. Mine's Ken Griffey Jr., and I will not apologize for it. (laughs) But, you know, hey, highlighting your book, you you had a blurb on the back of it, and I will quote, and yes, I will quote, my high school classmate, Wayne Stewart, has captured what the 1960 Pittsburgh Pirates were all about, making this an enjoyable book that baseball fans will like, by Ken Griffey himself. So, hey, my favorite player of all time was, you know, just the son of your classmate. Ken Griffey himself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's a know, nice little connection there. Well, I appreciate that. And the funny thing is a lot of people don't realize that while Junior obviously was the better player of the two, uh, you know, uh, Ken Sr. was on the two world championships teams of the big red machine. And he actually lifetime out hit his son, if we define that by batting average. He had 296. A lot of people don't realize uh, Griffey Sr. was pretty daggone good ball player. <laughs> was no slouch. Mm. Yeah, I mean, to be in the league long enough to be playing while your son's on the same team, you certainly can't be a slouch. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, so I really appreciate uh, the time you took out of your day to come on during this 60th anniversary of Maz's home run. I uh, really appreciate it. Any other last bits of the book or anything you want to uh, to plug or talk about? Well, like you said, the this 1960 book's only available on Amazon, but the book Wits, Flakes, and Clowns, and all my books, I think, are available on Amazon. If you type in Wayne Stewart, again, it's S-T-E-W-A-R-T, uh, you'll find all those books. As far as uh, any last thoughts, uh, yeah, you know, with Clemente being the favorite player for most Pittsburghers, I thought it was, uh, well, at least it was something I came up with which dispelled something I had thought of as being true but wasn't. All my life, I had the impression that Clemente was was really bitter that he didn't get the MVP that year, that Dick Rode did. But my research seems to indicate that he was only, you know, being a very proud guy and a, and a tremendous athlete, he was upset that he didn't get as many votes as he thought he deserved. I mean, he came in eighth place in the voting that year. So he had a legitimate complaint to say, I deserve more respect from the voters. Uh, but... Uh, you know, and then, of course, 1971 and, and so on. Then he really gets the national acclaim. But, you know, obviously a superstar. Hmm. 
I don't think anyone can disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, well, one other thing real quick is uh, people were puzzled as to why Bobby Richardson won the MVP as opposed to Mazeroski. And Elroy Face told me, he said, I think I deserved it in some respects. <laughs> he had uh, three saves, which I think is the first, he was the first guy to do that in the World Series. And he had a victory, would have had a victory in Game 7, but things happened. So, mm -hmm. um, But the, the answer to the, why Richardson got the MVP, uh, he told me that he was almost positive that the voting was done before the ninth inning. And so the Sport Magazine people had to come up with a tally real quick. Yankees are winning in the top of the ninth. I remember, no, they tied it, huh? But at any rate, they did the voting early, and uh, Richardson gets the uh, MVP. I mean, he did have 12 RBIs, which was a record, six in one game. But, uh, yeah, Mass kind of got robbed there as well. But, yeah, and you would imagine. So, again, we talked about the hitting part. I mean, look at the team's ERAs in, in this World Series. You know, the, the Yankees had a team ERA of 354, and the Pirates at 711. So you could only like if you were just looking at these stats, I could only think the Pirates got swept. <laughs> yeah, and yet they come out victorious. It was the highest team ERA I saw somewhere since I think nineteen uh, I forget, but like nineteen thirty something or other. So yeah, they were they were just uh, pounded, but instead of getting swept, they went in seven. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wayne, once again, nineteen sixty when the Pirates. When the Pittsburgh Pirates had them all the way available on Amazon. You can find all those other books there, too, as well. I really appreciate your time and this conversation. And uh, you enjoy the rest of your day. And hopefully maybe there will be another World Series we can talk about from the Pirates. Yep. Love talking <laughs> baseball with you guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye now. Thanks, Wayne. Same as well. Have a good day. Take care. All right. So, once again, really want to thank Wayne for coming on the show. His book, 1960, When the Pirates Had Them All the Way. Go check him out. Go get a couple books. Go get a couple, couple copies for you. Christmas is coming up. Get a couple copies for the family. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you, there was definitely some, some pretty cool things that I learned today that I did not know 45 minutes ago. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Denardo, I'm not a big reader, but I might actually read a book. I know, right? I got to see. I mean, Amazon is with Audible. Is it also on Audible? <laughs> I like when things <laughs> read to me. <laughs> But, uh, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's definitely something that's interesting as well. I think I might pick that up also. Um, and so, so you should book. be able to read it to you, right? Yeah, yeah, why not, right? I mean, the Apple event was today also. All kinds of things happening today, right? The new HomePod for $99. I'll have that read it to me. But no, I think the one, right, the, the, uh, the most colorful character, characters in baseball, I think that one would really speak to me. I would like yeah. that one. No, but Wayne has a lot of good stories. Obviously, he's talked to a lot of very important people around the game. Right? Isn't he? He talked about you know Maz going anywhere and, and you know always getting a free beer and such. Like I yeah. feel like I want to take I Wayne out for a couple of beers. Right? I just want to <laughs> go have a beer with Wayne and just let, <laughs> right. let him talk. I know. Like, trust me, your night is covered, Wayne. <laughs> Whenever all right, I'm Wayne. back in in the, in the Berg somewhere, you know, around. We're coming out. We're having a few beers. We're, we're talking some stories. Because I'm like Wait, said, I'm not going to speak for millennium. an hour. Just go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just tell me everything you know. <laughs> we'll, we'll have brunch the next day also. So <laughs> kegs right, and yeah. eggs on us too. We'll take it all.
<laughs> All right. Well, that's wraps up the show. Um, I guess now thinking about it, this is being released on Sunday. So next up will be Starbucks, not North Shore and I <laughs> live. But uh, yeah. So with that said, we'll catch y'all this week. Enjoy. And um, I don't know. Let's go Bucks. Woohoo. <laughs> Number one pick. Bye-bye. Peace out, Scouts. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last Crunch Berry. No! No one steals my crunch berries. I think you mean my crunch berries. Choose your own crunch venture with Captain Crunch. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, 
create custom chores and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.